We're back with Backstory. I'm Peter Onuf. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Brian Bellow. Today on the show, we're focusing in on the secession crisis that gripped the nation 150 years ago this spring. When we left off, it was February 1861, and representatives from the seven lower south states that had left the Union were meeting in Montgomery to create a new government. At the same time in Springfield, Illinois, President-elect Abraham Lincoln was boarding a train for Washington, D.C. It had been three whole months since his election, and would be another month still before he would actually take office. And so you can imagine the anticipation all along his route as people gathered in the hopes of hearing something anything, really, about what the man whose election had triggered the crisis planned to do about it. Radio producer Thomas Pierce is going to tell the story now of Lincoln's journey to the White House. We begin in a baggage car. Trunks full of books and clothes rattle as a train moves east. On a small card, the trunk's owner and destination. A. Lincoln, White House, Washington, D.C. The ride is just as bumpy up in the passenger car. Reporters grumble how it's hard to write down anything at all. They are here to document the two-week journey of the president-elect, who watches tiny Illinois prairie towns pass by outside the window. The stop at each train depot is a similar scene. Brass bands that erupt into old songs like Hail Columbia, church bells, and cannon salutes thousands of people pressing for a first glimpse of their new president. He has a large head with a very high shelving forehead. One reporter writes... A first crop of darkish whiskers, a clean, well-built neck, more back than chest, a long, lank trunk. Future President Rutherford B. Hayes, who's in the audience in Indianapolis, notes Lincoln's curious way of bowing uncomfortably to the crowds. His chin rises, his body breaks in two at the hip. Homely as L is, if you get a good view of him by daylight, when he is talking, he is by no means ill-looking. In town after town, Lincoln addresses the crowds from podiums in the back of the train and at least once standing on a chair in a hotel lobby. At each of these stops, he seems to make a point of not really saying much at all. You know that it has not been my custom since I started on this route to Washington to make long speeches. I am rather inclined to silence, and whether that be wise or not, it is at least more unusual nowadays to find a man who can hold his tongue than to find one who cannot. In the months after his election, Lincoln had proved he was a man who could hold his tongue, especially on the subject the public most wanted to hear about, how he planned to handle the fact that state after state was leaving the Union. Many thought his silence was a terrible mistake. One New York Herald editorial called it foolish. The New York Times said the silence had left the field open for a struggle of factions. Alexander Stevens, who would become vice president of the Confederacy, was at the time still arguing against secession in his home state of Georgia. He wrote Lincoln, pleading with him to say something that could help his cause. A word fitly spoken by you now would indeed be like apples of gold in pictures of silver. What could Lincoln say that could change the basic problem, which is the South thought slavery was right and Lincoln and the Republicans thought slavery was wrong? Eric Foner is a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of The Fiery Trial, a book about Lincoln and slavery. He says that while Lincoln appeared to be letting history unfold without him in those months, he was anything but silent behind the scenes. Lincoln uh, intervenes fairly forcefully uh, by the end of December in letters to members of Congress in which he makes it very clear that he is opposed to compromise on what he considers the key issue, which is the westward expansion of slavery. Let there be no compromise on the issue of extending slavery. He wrote to Republican allies in Washington. Have none of it. Stand firm. 
The tug has to come, and better now than at any time hereafter. In Congress, which was starting to thin out with defections, there were increasingly desperate calls for a plan that might head off military action. Kentucky Senator John Crittenden was proposing that the Constitution be amended to protect slavery forever where it already existed, and that the Missouri Compromise be reinstated, allowing for the extension of slavery below a certain line. Lincoln didn't take issue with the constitutional amendment, but he was dead set against any plan that would result in the creation of even a single new slave state. Lincoln says basically, look, we've been elected on this platform. If we compromise now, a year from now, they're going to threaten to secede unless we acquire Cuba as a slave state. Uh, In one of his letters to a member of Congress, he says, you know, if we compromise, it's the end of us as a party. In the end, all five Republicans on the Senate committee considering the Crittenden plan voted against it. And the Republican Party, of course, lived long and prospered. But the fact that Lincoln proved savvy in his political calculations that winter does not mean he had any idea of what was just around the corner. The great danger here is reading history backwards. The alternative to compromise was not necessarily war. I think Lincoln and many Republicans believed that if they just waited the crisis out, if they delayed, that secession would sort of collapse from within. Uh, Lincoln was willing to risk war, but I don't think he saw war as the inevitable outcome of not compromising. And so as Lincoln boarded the train in Springfield on that chilly February morning, 1861, a gray shawl wrapped around his shoulders, really there were no inevitables. Lincoln had drawn his line in the sand, but nobody, including Lincoln himself, knew what might happen next. That special report for Backstory is from radio producer Thomas Pierce.